Get your Bibles out, um, your real one or your smartphone. We're in Luke chapter 16 today. We're just back into Luke for a couple weeks before we uh, get to an Advent series. Luke chapter 16. In 1944, um, second World War II last couple weeks, I guess, 1944, there was a Japanese second lieutenant who was sent to uh, Lebang Island, which is in the Philippines. He was an intelligence officer, and his job was to frustrate, the war was not going well for the Japanese at that point. His job was to frustrate the attempts of the Allies to come in and, and sweep across the island. Um, unfortunately, other army officers in the area thwarted his attempts and <clears throat> the Allies just completely ran over the island. Japanese were captured left and right. But this young man, by the name of Hiru Onada, escaped into the hills. He linked up with three other men and uh, they continued to mount guerrilla activities in the coming months. And not knowing that in 1945, the armistice was signed and the war came to an end. In the months after the end of the war, leaflets were dropped. They realized there were still some Japanese holdouts. And so they would drop leaflets from planes and, and tell them the war was over and they should lay down their arms and so forth. And they these four thought it was a trick, and so they just continued to fight and hide and do whatever damage they could to the local populace and to any military efforts they thought were underway. 1945, 46, 47, 48, 49, 50. 1950, one of the th- four men surrendered. In 1954, one of the remaining three was killed in a shootout with police. 55, 56 through the 50s, through the 60s, we're now into the 1970s. Wars come to an end, 1945. There are still a couple of men up in the hills that think the war continues. When Hiro Oneida was sent to the Philippines, he was told by his commander, never surrender, never kill yourself, never um, believe that the war has come to an end. And so that's the way he functioned. In 1972, the year that Betty and I got married, the last one other than Oneida was killed in a conflict with some local farmers. In 1974, a Japanese man who was independently wealthy and was traveling around the world with three objectives in mind in this order. Number one, to find Hiro Oneida. Number two, to find a wild panda, and number three, to find the abominable snowman. So he started out in the Philippines, and sure enough, he was able to track down this man after four days of searching, found him in a cave, convinced him to come out and talk with him. Wasn't convinced that the war was over despite what this man told him. And so this man took a bunch of photographs and um, went back to Japan and told the authorities he found this guy and he still thinks the war's ongoing. You've got to find a way to get him to lay down his arms. And so they located his commander, a major who was now working as a bookseller 
in Tokyo, and they flew him to the Philippines. And they had him meet up with Hiro, and he ordered him to lay down his arms. The war is over. And he did. Now, there were plenty of people along the way that for 29 years tried to convince Onada that the war was over. But he wasn't convinced they would know. Wasn't convinced they would tell him the truth. Had to get his commander, fortunately he was still alive, had to get his commander to come and tell him, lay down your arms, the war is over. And in this case, Onada believed he would know. Now, this is the way most of us function in life. We have things that we're not sure about. We, we get a professional. We bring in, you know, when I have plumbing problems in my house, I don't try to fix plumbing. Anytime I've tried that, a lot of things or a lot of people get wet. Uh, you go to people that know how to resolve the problem or who know the truth. This person would know the truth. We're going to talk this morning about something that may be the most um, distressing thing for you about your faith. For some of you, it might even be embarrassing. We're going to talk about hell this morning. I was reading an article a couple of weeks ago on hell online. And uh, I'm, I'm one of these uh, people that likes to read the comments underneath articles I read uh, online. At least some of them are always, always interesting. And this was written underneath that article. He said, hell doesn't exist. Stop, stop being so paranoid. You people who believe in hell should stop worrying over such useless things. What are the chances that an eternal punishment from a fictional book exists? Even if the Bible was the true word of God or something, it says he loves you. And if he loves each and every one of us equally, would he send you to eternal damnation? Eternal, which means forever, no end. I am genuinely concerned if you really do believe in being tortured forever for, quote, committing a sin. Now, here's a man who clearly doesn't, he's not a believer, doesn't believe the Bible, doesn't believe in hell, doesn't believe in the Bible, on and on and on. But if you're paying any attention at all to the winds that are blowing through the Christian church, at least in the States, you know that there are increasingly things like hell that are being thrown overboard, things that have been taught for 2,000 years in the Christian church that are now being laid aside, say, no, we don't believe that's the truth anymore. And hell is one of them. Increasingly, argument is being made that um, there can't possibly be a hell because, after all, God is a loving God. And, and, and as a parent, we would not... Uh, say we love our children and then consign them to eternal conscious torment. We, we just wouldn't do that. And if God is truly a loving father, could he possibly, possibly do something like that? And again, we have to th ask the question, all right, who might know best? Who would know? And my instinct is to say, what about the son of God who was with God from the beginning, which didn't have a that neither had a beginning, and he, he sits at his right hand today with the Father. He knows the beginning from the end. He has come to this earth on a, mounting a rescue operation. Surely he would know. And so we're going to read this passage today, and Jesus weighs in on this matter of 
hell. So we're starting in verse 16. Jesus said, there was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. As Lazarus lay there longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open sores. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried, and his soul went to the place of the dead. Now, your translation might say there, Hades, or might say hell, where mine says the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some pity. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted and Lazarus had nothing? So now he is here being comforted and you were in anguish. You are in anguish. And besides, there's a great chasm separating us. No one can cross over to you from here and no one can cross over to us from there. And then the rich man said, please, Father Abraham, at least send him to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. But Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, no, Father Abraham, but if if someone is sent to them from the dead, they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even as someone rises from the dead. Father, I pray that your Holy Spirit would be our teacher this morning, that he would instruct us, that we would rightly understand your word that the one who knows best would reveal to us truth. Not just academically, but we know, as we're going to talk about later, there are some pretty significant repercussions of where we land in this. We want to pray, uh, first of all, for the church that you have created in Christ. That means not just Keystone, it's local fellowship, not just Grace Points, not just Calvary Monument Bible Church or Bellevue Presbyterian, not just Peckway Baptist, um, not not just all the, the churches that are up and down our streets around the world, but all the church of all time. We give you thanks for the work that Christ has done to create the church. We give you thanks for the promise that the gates of hell will not withstand its assault. And yet its assault is going to be uh, less and less effective if we are more and more co-opted and impacted and influenced by the world than by the word. By the uh, winds of uh, modern worldview than by the wind of the Holy Spirit. And so I just pray for, uh, just for the church, uh, especially here in this country, it seems like it's, it, it, it's going um, downhill faster than another, some other parts of the world. And we pray for a, a revitalized uh, confidence in 
the word that you have spoken, the revelation that you have left for us and all that it says. May we place ourselves humbly beneath it instead of above and over it. I pray against the enemy who's laughing himself silly at the direction the church seems to be going and he's rubbing his hands with glee. May he lose big time. Pray that you would bind him this morning, that you would silence him as we um, talk in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the first questions we have to wrestle with is, is, is this a story Jesus made up or is this an actual historical account? If you read the top on the uh, top of this section in the New Living Translation, which I read from this morning, it says, uh, parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Yours might say that as well. Now, those headings are not part of the original inspired text. They were added by other people. A parable is a not true story, but it's a story that could be true. In other words, it's not mythological. Jesus, when he tells these parables, uh, tells them to make a point, but they're, they're very common and ordinary th- facets of everyday life. But they're made up stories to make a point. Jesus told 43 different parables in the gospel accounts that we have recorded. And it's interesting, if you look at every one of them and compare them one to another, you'll notice something that stands out about this particular story that's not true in any of the other 43. 42. There's a name given in here. Of all the stories that Jesus tells as parables, he never once gives a name, but he does in this one. The poor man is named Lazarus. Now, not the Lazarus that Jesus raised from the dead in John chapter 11. This is a different Lazarus, but he gives him a name. Scholars kind of divided on this, most lean to thinking this is a made-up story, but to me, this is kind of, that, that, that's, that influences my conclusion. I think he might be talking about an actual instance that he, as the Son of God, knows about. Now, whether or not he is, um, if Jesus just made this up, there's no reason to co- conclude that he made up a lot of uh, unusual, unusual features uh, for the story. He's trying to convey something He's trying to convey specifically that there is an afterlife and specifically that there is a division in the afterlife and that, there are, that there's no going back. Those kinds of things he's intending to convey to his listeners. Now I want to talk, um, we'll look at this passage uh, talking about trading lives and then we're going to talk about trading lies, L-I-E-S. Trading lives. So you have two men, very, very different lifestyles. The one has a mansion, beautiful home. He's got a, a stable of uh, European cars in his garage. Well, he would be if it's today. Um, he's been able to travel all around the country and ha- enjoy incredible experiences. He's been able to put all of his kids through college. Um, he's ha- he has the life. He's got the perfect life. Never has to worry about where he's going to find food. Never has to worry about who's going to take care of his illnesses. He's got everything going his way. On the other hand, Lazarus is a man who is um, poor. He's probably homeless. He lies outside the gate of this rich man, hoping that some scraps will fall from the table. Doesn't seem like they ever do. 
and he doesn't have any access to health care, doesn't even have any bandages or no one to put them on. The best he can do is have dogs come and lick his open sores. Now the rich man, for all of the, that he has going for him, and, and, and let me just uh, do a little turn here for a moment. The fact that Jesus says this man is rich and this man is poor does not single out the problem. Now Jesus talks all through the gospel accounts about the dangers of money and wealth over and over and over again. But if you conclude that this would be great ammo for Bernie Sanders on a stump campaign, you're mistaken. Look at verse 30. The rich man is in hell and he wants desperately to see his brothers saved from ending up here. And he says, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. In other words, he knows what the problem was and the problem was not his wealth. His wealth might have led him astray, might have distracted him and taken him away from what he needed to pay attention to for the next life. But the wealth was not what took him to hell. It was the fact that he had not repented and he had not turned, repented of his sins and he had not turned to God. That was the fundamental problem. So rich man, poor man. This man has uh, everything going for the, him. This man has nothing going for him. This man over here that has everything going for him has all kinds of resources, has all kinds of capability, doesn't seem to have uh, any interest in this man who is lying at his gate hoping for some table scraps to fall onto the ground. And apparently, the, 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 the man who's got everything, he could have simply swiped a piece of, you know, kind of brushed a piece of fruit off of the table with his hand, just in mercy. And that doesn't appear to ever happen. It says about the man who's lying on the ground that he, verse 21, he lay there longing for scraps. That verb tells me that he did this over and over and over and never once did he get any of those scraps. So you got a man who has nothing and a man who has everything except concern for his neighbor. And they both die. And this is where their lives are treated. The man who once had nothing now has everything. The man who once had everything now has nothing. The man who had a good life suddenly has a very bad life. The man who had a bad life now suddenly has a very, very good life. Now we are gonna, I'm gonna use an adjective here to describe where these two men went. Uh, if you die today, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you will not go to the ultimate heaven. If you are not a follower of Jesus Christ and die today, you will not go to the ultimate hell. You will go to what theologians call the intermediate state, or I'll call the intermediate heaven and intermediate hell because the, we, we can't really tell what the distinctions might be between the two. We do know that from Revelation chapter 20 that there is a future hell called the lake of fire, the Gehenna that Jesus talked about, into which the intermediate state and death gets cast into in the final day. And we know from Revelation 21 that there is a new heaven and a new earth that will create, be created one day. So these two are going into the intermediate state, but just like the ultimate heaven, 
This is a, uh, the intermediate heaven is a place of great blessedness in fellowship with other believers and, and the presence of God. And in the same way, the rich man is in the intermediate hell, which like the ultimate hell is a place of great horror and suffering and never, never ends. One of the things that, one of the things that's being um, wrestled with when the modern conversations about hell are occurring is, is it really a bad place? If it does exist, is it really a bad place? And you hear this man by his own testimony in verse 23, he's talking about it's a place of torment. Um, he's talking in verse 24 about being in anguish in these flames. And by the way, I have no idea if there are actual flames in hell, if there's actual darkness in hell, Jesus talked about those things. But don't forget, people when they die, after death, they're going to be different kinds of people. We're going to be different kinds of people. Eventually we get a resurrection body, whether we are in heaven or in hell. Not now, but after Jesus comes back, those who are believers will get their resurrected body and after, G, after the thousand year reign and God, Christ has defeated Satan and all his forces, there will be a resurrection of unbelievers' bodies. And so they're going to have a new kind of body and whether or not flames could actually affect, I don't know. Here's the point. Jesus described, and Jesus talked more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. When Jesus describes hell, he describes it as something awful. Whether it is exactly like this or simply meant to re represent what it will be like, it will be far worse than any of us could possibly, possibly fathom or imagine. And that's the peace that Jesus wants so much to get across to us. Now Abraham is responding to this man who is in, is in hell, and he wants desperately, the, the man wants Lazarus, send Lazarus back, to my brothers, but first of all, he asks, will you send him over here just to give me a little, little bit of cool water? Abraham says, doesn't work like that. He can't get to you, you can't get to us. And remember, everything was good for you in the last life, and it was bad for Lazarus. Now everything is good for him, and it's bad for you. Do you catch what he's saying there? You were preoccupied with the wrong life. When you lived your life before, you were so busy enjoying all of your wealth and all of your money, you didn't even have time to provide some table scraps to somebody that had nothing. You were focused on the wrong life. The man responds, okay, if you can't help me, how about if you help my family? I don't know if you caught this, but there is a, there is a subtle um, accusation in his next words. He wants Lazarus to go back and warn his brothers so that they won't come to this awful place. And Abraham says, well, first of all, nobody can go back. You can't go back. And, and, and he says, anyway, they have Moses and the prophets. In other words, what he is saying is, your brothers have the Bible and they can read it. And here's where the accusation comes in. No, 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 no. Um, they, they won't be impacted by the Bible, but if somebody rises from the dead, now that'll get their attention. 
To which Abraham replies, if they won't listen to the Bible, that's what he's saying, the Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. Now Jesus encountered this interest and intrigue in miraculous events during his life, uh, life in ministry. And people would ask him, do, you know, do a trick for us, Jesus. And Jesus responded, an evil and a wicked generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it. Now, uh, let me just stop there. Jesus gave many miraculous signs in his day, right? He healed many people. He cast out many demons. He, he took a little boy's lunch and he multiplied it into a banquet for thousands and thousands of people. I, I mean, he did some phenomenal things. He rose, raised some people from the dead. He gave miraculous signs, but here was the problem. The people that were asking him for miraculous signs really weren't interested in him. They just wanted to see him do tricks. And this is one of the fundamental problems of uh, having a faith that ends up being focused on miracles rather than simply asking God for miracles. You focus on miracles, Jesus knows you're not really interested in him, you're just interested in the gifts he could give. And it's interesting, here Abraham says, look, at the end of the day, people with hard hearts like your brothers and like you, if they are not moved by the truth and the word of God, they are not going to be moved by miracles. That's what he's saying. If they've not been moved by the writings of Moses and the writings of the prophets, the revelation of God through those writers, then they're not going to be moved even as someone get, is raised from the dead in front of them. They're not going to be affected. I wonder if God would call you today or call me today, say, I want you to spend the rest of your life, get, quit your job, I want you to spend the rest of your life doing nothing but calling people to faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to be a full-time evangelist. And I will give you one of these two things. I will either give you a nice, fresh, a good English Bible, or I will give you the ability to do miracles at the snap of a finger. Which would you choose? Which would you choose? If you knew that God would give you the ability to raise people from the dead or to heal cancer or any dread disease or any other problem, if God would offer that to you or an English Bible like you already have, which would you choose? Do you hear what Abraham's saying? The Bible is where the power is. The word of God is where the clout is. That's the, that's the transformation power of the Holy Spirit. Not in the miracle itself. So, The question Abraham puts to us and to all the people that are driving past here this morning, not going to other churches, but having nothing to do with the Lord, the people that we work with, the people that we play sports with, the people that we live neighbors to, the question that's being asked of us is, which life, this one or the next one, is driving you? Sometimes we live our lives in such a way that people who are looking in on them say, well, you're just like me. You've got all your marbles in this life. 
You've got all your attention paid to this life. You have all your focus on this life. You're seeing how much you can, how much you can squeeze out of this life. Eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Which life drives you? This life, brothers and sisters, is gonna last you, if God extends grace to you and I, it's gonna last us 60, 70, 80 years, maybe 90 years at best. And the next one never ends. If we believe that, that should drive us. Let's talk about the trading of lies. What I mean by that increasingly is uh, professing Christians and even Christian leaders arguing that hell doesn't exist, that people who do not turn to Christ all eventually get saved anyway or immediately get saved after this life or at, at worst are annihilated. So in our time, we're seeing increasing numbers even of Christian leaders who are saying eventually everybody gets saved, that's universalism. That was the message of Rob Bell's famous book back in 2011, Love Wins. Everybody gets saved. Or as John Stott taught, annihilationism as Jehovah's Witnesses teach, that if you die apart from Christ, you simply cease to exist. Simply cease to exist. Now, I want to show you a little video clip of a pastor from uh, what was the largest church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, back in the 1990s. In the early days of 2000s, changed his mind about the matter of hell and what happened in the wake of that. There was a movie that just came out about his life this spring called Come Sunday, and it was released on uh, Netflix. I don't know that there was any showing in theaters. And he sits down with Megan Kelly on her uh, talk show to talk about what took place. Take a look. We approach the Easter and Passover holidays. We're taking a leap of faith together, speaking with some influential and innovative religious leaders and pioneers about God, faith, heaven, and hell. This morning, we are joined by Bishop Carlton Pearson, a man who brought innumerable people together with his charismatic message. But then a voice one night from the man upstairs led him down a controversial path that cost him practically everything. There is life, there is spontaneity, there is joy. Bishop Carlton Pearson is an energetic, dancing around, trying to fit, trying to find your place. Passionate, I was so overcome with love, and captivating spiritual leader. And leave you up there for a while. Drawing his congregation in with flowing sermons and perfect pitch. On me. You could say Pearson was born to be a preacher. As a child, our whole life revolved around the church. I started preaching when I was 14. Um, I was licensed at 15, ordained at 18. He attended Oral Roberts University in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and Oral Roberts himself took Pearson under his wing. Out of all the probably 25,000 students that had gone through there by the time he retired, no one had the kind of access to him as I did. He really, literally treated me like his son. You don't know what I Fresh out of school, Bishop Pearson's popularity and message grew beyond anyone's expectations, including his own. I was the first African-American preacher on the South Side to start a church that was integrated and maintained it to where it became what they would call a megachurch in, in this town, up, up to about four or five thousand. 
Bishop Pearson preached to millions all over the country. In 1995, he spoke alongside Reverend Billy Graham at the Oklahoma City Bombing Memorial. The best for Oklahoma and America is still to come. And was a spiritual advisor to President George H.W. Bush. But everything changed when Pearson had what he called a revelation from God. I believe people go through hell, not ultimately to hell. Stop telling people they're going to hell. I said, I don't care if they're sitting there with a needle in their arm, drunk, smoking a joint, HIV positive. Tell them their sins are forgiven. There's no issue between them and God that hasn't been resolved in Jesus. That's all I said. If he didn't condemn, why do we? His new message did not go over well with his congregation or with high-ranking church officials. Before he knew it, he had lost everything and was branded a heretic. And the interesting story follows that. You can, excuse me, you can follow him on, on YouTube and read some more about it. Uh, he talks about his doctrine of inclusion, i.e., everyone ultimately gets saved. Now, his argument in part is that God is such a loving God that he couldn't possibly um, not just send anyone to hell, allow anyone to go to hell. And increasingly, we're hearing that from more and more Christian leaders that God would be too loving to send anyone to hell. Now, I would argue, and it's interesting, did you catch that, that he got a revelation from the man upstairs? Did you catch that? And he would say, he, heard a, he, he says that he heard a voice one night, told him that he was to start preaching this. Now, my friends, listen to me very, very carefully. If you hear a voice talk to you and it doesn't square with this, you should ask for some ID. If you have a thought that goes through your mind that doesn't square with this, you should ask questions and not say amen. We're, we're, we're seeing a vast departure away from the authority of the word of God in our day. It's interesting to have watched uh, Rob Bell's kind of disintegration as an evangelical pastor of a large megachurch. He lost, eventually lost his church about a year after he published the book Love Wins and, and, it, and within a very short amount of time he reputed, repudiated everything that he once taught. Um, including Jesus is the only way to be reconciled to God, uh, including that God's plan for humanity is a um, sexual plan, is a relationship between a husband and a wife, a man and a woman, and on and on. You basically take down all um, what has been considered as for 2,000 years biblical truth out the window. Here's the problem. Those voices have your ears and my ears. Thanks to the internet, they have a broad, broad, broad reach. And when we have very persuasive, charismatic, uh, uh, able to present things in such captivating ways, kinds of people, it's no wonder that we're finding more and more and more straying. And we should be asking ourselves, who would know about this? Who would know about that? And the answer should be our Savior, not the latest, impressive, captivating 
speaker. So let's look at a couple of things that Jesus says about this. First of all, Jesus would know about his father's love. If love is the argument that hell does not exist because of father's love, nobody knows better about um, the father's love than Jesus does. Um, Have you turn with me to John chapter three, verse 16, a verse that probably many of you have memorized over the years. And uh, I'd like you to say it with me out loud. Verse 16, for this is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Now listen carefully to that. This is how God loved the world. In other words, he's not saying, Jesus is not saying, the way God loves the world is to make sure no one ever suffers, to make sure no one ever is going to be lost. No, the way he loved the world is the giving of himself. He's giving of himself and then you can choose. He gives you the option, you can choose. But he loved us this way. I'm going to deny myself and give my one and only son who to be brutally murdered so that not everyone, but everyone who believes in him will not perish and have eternal life. Indeed, in this very same text, Jesus goes on to talk about what happens if we don't believe. Verse 18, there is no judgment against anyone who believes in him. And Jesus is speaking about himself here, about the son of man. Anyone who believes in Jesus Christ, no, no judgment against them. But anyone who does not believe in him has already been judged for not believing in God's one and only son. He's speaking about the the wrath to come that's gonna come on those who reject Jesus Christ. Romans chapter two, beginning at verse five, speaks about uh, about this wrath. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, what is the thing that stands between us and God? It's not our lineage, it's not our socioeconomic status, it's not our color, it's not our age, it's not our weight, uh, it's not our habits. What stands between us and God and all that stands between us and God is our sin. And this is what keeps us from saying yes to Jesus. But because you are stubborn and refuse to turn from your sin, Paul says you are storing up terrible punishment for yourself for a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. Is God loving? Absolutely. But that doesn't tell the whole story of God. God's not only loving, he's also just, he's also merciful, he's also, uh, uh, he's also gracious, but he is also a God of wrath who will exercise that wrath one day. A day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. He will judge everyone according to what they have done. Now you need to put that in context with the rest of this text and the rest of the Bible, what they have done specifically in responding to God's gift of Christ. He will give eternal life to those who keep on doing good, seeking after the glory and honor and immortality that God offers. But. He will pour out his anger and wrath on those who live for themselves, who refuse to obey the truth and instead live lives of wickedness. And no matter who wants to alter the plot line, you simply cannot 
take away the eternal nature of hell any more than you can take away the eternal nature of heaven. Let me have you go back to Matthew chapter 25. Matthew 25, beginning of verse 31, Jesus is speaking here, this famous passage where he talks about um, the division of people. But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, so he's speaking about when Jesus comes back, second coming, all the angels with him, then he will sit upon his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered in his presence and he will separate the people as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats and he will place the sheep at his right hand and the goats at his left. And then he goes on to talk about people who cared for others in need versus the people who didn't. We could put the rich man and the poor man in in this commentary. But our interest is in verse 46. When Jesus wraps this all up, he says, and they will go away into eternal punishment. He's talking about the goats, so the people who are rebels against God, into eternal punishment, but the righteous will go into eternal life. Now, here's the point. If you believe that this is teaching that heaven will be eternal forever, it's the exact same word, then there's no way to tear these two strands apart. If heaven is eternal, if heaven is forever, so is hell. Now listen, I wanna make an argument here that might sound strange to you. There are three things, at least three, and there might be more. There are at least three messages that hell has for us that the cross also has for us. First of all, wow, is God holy. That's the message that hell has for us and that's the message that the cross has for us. Secondly, wow, is sin awful? Both the big sins and the small sins. Third, wow, does God hate sin? Now here's a message that the cross gives us all by itself. Wow, does God want to rescue people from judgment? Because if he didn't, He wouldn't have bothered to send Jesus. But he sent Jesus and said, you decide. For me, against me. For me, against me. Now, just a couple of points of application. And the first thing I want to say is to you who are parents. This is a bit of a side application, but it's a... I think it's so crucial in, in the environment that we're living in and with massive departures from um, biblical truth, even in the church. The solution to keeping your children on the straight and narrow road is not hiding um, dispute from them. In other words, um, our instinct as parents, because we get these kids from from when they're so tiny and so they're, they're so, uh, they depend on us for everything. We can kind of keep treating them like they're little infants even though they're 14 years old, for example. 
And we think, well, I don't want them to hear that there are Christians out there who are claiming that hell doesn't exist or that all people will be annihilated who aren't believers. I, I don't want them to hear that, that there are Christian people, professing Christians who say that Jesus is one of many ways to be reconciled with God. I don't want them to hear that. I don't want them to be exposed to that, to that because they might believe that. The solution for solid, rock-solid, Bible-believing, confident, faithful Christians is not secluding them, isolating them, or keeping them in some sort of bubble. The solution is guiding them, letting them ask their questions, having interaction with them. You say, well, I don't even know how to talk with them about this because I don't know much myself. That's a problem only you can solve, mom or dad. Your kids should be able to come to you and talk to you about anything, and you have one or two responses. I don't know how to help you, but I'll learn. And we can explore the scriptures together and we're going to grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ together. Don't hide your kids from these things. We want solid, well-informed, well-nourished, their souls and their minds well-nourished in the word of God. And you gotta, you gotta entrust them to the hands of God with some of these things. Now back to the whole point of hell. If you are appalled by hell, good, good. I, I, it drives me crazy to read some things online where I, where I see people who are professing to be Christians writing in the comment, set, comment section, well, you're gone to hell and it sounds like they're happy about it. Are you serious? Do you understand what that's going to be like? We should be appalled by hell, we should be. But rather than judging God for hell, we should be impacted by how we live in the world because of hell. One thing I agreed with Rob Bell in his book, he says, what you believe about the future shapes, informs, and determines how you live now. And I want my my life, if I believe in hell, and I do, I want my life to be informed by that. I want my concern about the world around me to be informed by that. I want, I want the ways I spend my money to be informed by that. I want the, way, the people that I talk to to be informed by that. The relationships that I form and spend time with and the ones that I don't, I want them to be informed by my conviction. It should stir up compassion in your heart and mind. Follower of Jesus Christ, we should be driven to talk to people about Jesus if we believe in hell. We should be driven to pour funds and dollars into those who are serving and advancing the cause of Christ and the message of Christ around the world in the mission field. We should be taking time during our lunch hours sometimes to talk with our colleagues about Jesus and to knock on our neighbor's doors and say, can you come over for dinner and be praying for those people about their future. Be appalled by hell, but don't just be mentally, ah, that's awful. What's for lunch? Be transformed by that. You pray for me to that end, and I'll pray for you to that end. Father, probably if we were designing the whole program, at least some of us would do it differently than you. 
forgive us for being arrogant enough to think that in doing so we would do it wiser. And may the reality of hell, instead of changing what we believe is true, drive us to live like we believe it's true.